I'll be honest, that kind of fired me up, man. I'm like, you know, I'm ready to go. Uh, I can brag on Sam. You guys who are familiar with his teaching, I, I mean, he has a lot of, a lot of fans here. Um, really, really brilliant stuff, and, uh, and you will enjoy it and be enriched by it. All right, so I want to step back into the pages of history a little bit today. Uh, I want to go back to the early to mid-16th century. Not one that a lot of us are all that terribly familiar with, but when you go back to that, that was the time of the Protestant Reformation. It's a time when Martin Luther, when John Calvin, when, when Zwingli, Melanchthon, all of these guys are stepping forward, they're rediscovering the gospel, and it was a time of conflict between the Catholic Church and between these guys and all of their followers. And I kind of want to put that on the table. You know, that isn't necessarily a happy part of history. Uh, It isn't a great thing that we look back on and go, yeah, let's talk about that. But it's also something that has changed dramatically in terms of relationship. But when John Calvin was exiled from his native country of France and he went to Geneva, Switzerland, he founded there a seminary and he used that seminary to train young men and women for, in the Reformed faith, and then he would send them out into these other countries around Switzerland as church planters and to give you an idea as to the level of hostility between the Catholic Church and between these church planters and people like Calvin and so forth. The average life expectancy for a seminary graduate of Calvin's seminary was six months. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because that kind of changes the dynamic of your graduation day a bit, does it not? I mean, I don't know if you've graduated yet from anything, or maybe you've had several graduations, but, you know, I mean, it's typically, it's a pretty happy affair. Like, your parents are there, and your grandparents are there, and parents are super jacked because they just got a raise because hopefully you got a job, and now you're off, you know, and your siblings are there. They're hating life. They don't want to be there. It's a miserable day for them, but they're there. Your friends, maybe, if you're married, your spouse is there. It's cards, it's smiles, it's laughter, it's, it's checks that you get to cash, and maybe you got a car or something amazing. Like, graduation is awesome unless you're graduating from Calvin Seminary, in which case you've got about six months to live. And I say about, because I don't know, you could be ahead of the curve. Could be less. Okay, so there are documents that are survived from that day. So we have copies, for example, of, of like the forged passports of these people that they used to try to conceal their identities to stay alive longer, frankly, as they traveled in between these different countries. We have written accounts of some of the things that happened to some of these people. So there's a written account, for example, of a young lady who shows up at Calvin's door in Geneva. They're banging on his door in the middle of the night, demanding to see him, absolutely hysterical. He comes down, he opens the door, and he finds this woman standing there in her nightgown, covered in the blood of her husband, who was one of his seminary graduates, who went to France and began to plant a church and had come back to Geneva on furlough, was followed by assassins who murdered him in his bed next to his wife, whom they left alive to tell the tale. Woo! How many of y'all would sign up for that? Like if John Calvin himself was here this morning with the most amazing multimedia presentation, how many of you would go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'll I'll go to that seminary. Here's a bigger question. How many of you would sign your kids up for that? Because you'd rather go yourself. How many of you would let your husband sign up for that or your wife sign up for that? One of your friends sign up for that? Like if you went on a date with somebody and you said, hey, you know, you're just meeting. You're like, yeah, so what do you got planned for the future? Well, I just signed up for Calvin Seminary. I'd be like, check, you know, like, no, no, cancel the dinner. I'm just paying for the... Think about it. Here's a better question. 
What is the vision that John Calvin held before these young men and women, before these parents, before these people that was so big, that was so grand, that was so beautiful, that was so valuable, that was so compelling that they put their life on one side of the scale and then they put that on the other side of the scale and they said, yeah, I'm going to sign up. This is worth my life. It's called the kingdom of heaven. So when you come to the Bible, you hear about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' favorite way of describing what he's up to, of, of who he is and of what he's come to do. And the kingdom of heaven is much bigger than people on earth coming to faith in Jesus so that they can then go to heaven. And you need to know that, but that's certainly a part of it. It is undeniably true that part of the message of the gospel is that God so loved you that he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life and then to offer on a cross as a sacrifice for all of our failures and all of our selfishness and all of our sinfulness and all of the hardness of our hearts that we'll get to in a minute. That he might remove every barrier between us and him, that he might have us in relationship, fill us with his spirit now that we might have life abundant. And so, yeah, okay, so then when we die, we go to heaven. That's part of it. It's awesome. But that's only a piece. God is reclaiming the world through Jesus. In the end, it's a new world through Jesus. So in other words, the total project is the total transformation of this sin-stained, of this sorrow-filled, of this desperately broken planet into a place that is perfect that is joy-filled, that is pure, that is unbroken. It's a do-over, and in the end, it's absolute paradise. That's the idea. It's not just us going to heaven. It's heaven coming to us in the end. And that captured these people. And the question is, has it captured you? That's a little scary, isn't it? You're like, check, you know. I mean, look, it is unlikely that you and I are going to sign up for seminary and graduate and then die within six months or do anything and then die within six months for your faith in Jesus. But I'll tell you what, it's not unlikely in other places in the world. We need to be very, very grateful for the religious freedoms that we have in this country and zealous to protect them because they can go away. But you go to a lot of other places in the world and it is dangerous to be a Christian. I mean, take Iran, for example. Look at the church in Iran. Okay, these people get up in the morning, as I've said in the past, they kiss each other goodbye. They don't know if they're going to see each other that day again because they might be arrested, because they might be put in prison, because they might be killed. Like, it is a really dangerous place to be a Christian, and it is also, incidentally, the place where Christianity is growing fastest in the world. There's no pretenders in Iran. Nobody's kind of going, man, you know, I'm sort of casually associated with Jesus. No, 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 you wouldn't do that. You're either all in or you're not in at all because, you know, I mean, it might cost you everything. That's the calling that Jesus calls us to. It's a call to come with everything. And he calls us oftentimes through stories. So a couple of weeks ago, we began a study that we're calling He Gave Us Stories, and we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And today, we're going to come to a parable that's called the parable of the sower. And here's what Jesus is doing effectively with the parable of the sower. He's giving us a diagnostic tool by which to measure the openness of our hearts to Him, to His mission, to His plans, to His purposes, to what He wants to do in us and for us and through us in this world. 
He's like, guys, I know what the condition of the soil of your heart is, but I want you to know it. So it's sort of like, you know, your arm hurts and it's broken, but you don't know that, but he knows that. And he's like, I'm going to give you an x-ray machine. You know, just put your arm in there. We're going to take a look. You're going to, oh, that's the problem. Got it. Okay. That's what he does with this parable, except with regard to the receptivity of our hearts, to the seed of him and of his mission and of his kingdom, of what he's up to. In other words, when we get to the end of the deal, you're going to be able to look at your life objectively. It's like an x-ray in that sense. You're not wondering what the deal is. Like you get to the end of the story and you go, okay, so here's the thing. Either this exists in my life or this does not exist in my life. And I'm not wondering whether it's here or not. And the answer to the condition of the soil of my heart is found in it. It's either here or it's not here. And why does he want us to look at this? Because it's not to humiliate us. It's not to shame us. It's not to go, well, you know, you got a broken arm, so. It's to call us to himself. It's to, it's to enamor us with him. It's to say, my goodness, you were made for this. And none of this is in your life. And you're never going to be satisfied over here. So we pick up our study today in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1, where Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, says this. He says, that same day Jesus went out of the house. You're like, okay, you know what? I'm a little neurotic. What house are we talking about? Well, almost certainly this is the house of Peter in the city of Capernaum. If you've been on any of our Holy Land trips, that's one of the places we always go because it's a magnificent site. And you've seen where the house, in all likelihood, was located. All right, how far is it from there to the Sea of Galilee? Like the seashore, it's maybe a 100 yards, maybe, probably less. And in that day, the lake was more full, so it's not a long walk. Jesus went out of the house, and he sat down beside the Sea of Galilee, and then what happens? We read that great crowds of people who are all looking for Jesus, and the question is, why? Why? What's the motive of their heart? These great crowds of people gathered about Jesus. In fact, they gathered about Jesus so much so that they, they crowded him off the beach. So he got into a boat, and then he sat down in the boat while the crowd stood. Why did they stand? I mean, was that just the posture of learning? And that? No, because there's no place to sit down. There's so many people there that it's standing room only, and so they stand there in the heat, and they listen while Jesus told them many things in parables. And here's one that he gave them. He says a sower, that's a farmer. He said a sower went out to sow seed. So why does a farmer sow seed? Because I think that's important. He doesn't do it because he has nothing else to do. He's not like, hey, you know, I'm bored. I'm going to go sow some seed. What are you going to do today? You know, like, I need more room in the barn. We get all these bags of seed. I'm going to just sow them so I can put my track. No, a farmer sows seed because he wants a harvest. The harvest is what feeds his family. The harvest is what he makes his money from. The harvest is what gives life to other people. He sows seed, hoping that that seed will take deep root, that that seed will grow up a strong plant, and that that plant will produce a harvest. The goal of the sower who's sowing the seed is always the production of a harvest. The sower went out to sow, Jesus says. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. What's he envisioning? A road. What was the road made of in those days? Stone, flat, hard stone. So some of the seeds fell on the, on the stone. 
And what happened? Well, you know, what you would imagine would happen. The birds came, they devoured the seeds. And if your goal in sowing the seed is the production of a harvest and some of your seed falls on the path, it's kind of wasted, right? I mean, it becomes bird feeding, you know, like you're feeding the birds now. And I'm not against feeding the birds for the record. Like when we go to North Carolina, we've got all these bird feeders. And one of the first thing I do when I get there is I fill all the bird feeders. And it's not because I enjoy chasing the squirrels around for the rest of the week, which I do have to do because they are my nemesis. They want to eat all the bird seed. It's because my wife loves birds at a possibly unhealthy level. And so so I want, you know, I mean, I love her. So like I, I fill them up because it takes about a day for the birds to register. Hey, they're back, you know, and then they're all over the property. And so are the squirrels. But, but I'm not a farmer. If I'm a farmer, I'm like, I'm not feeding the birds. I'm trying to produce a harvest. He continues. He says, other seeds fell on rocky soil, rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And then they immediately sprang up. So there's this short burst of of growth, but it's not sustainable and it produces no harvest. Why? Since these seeds had no depth of soil. And so then when the sun rose, which is usually a good thing with a deeply rooted plant, at least, these plants were scorched. They had nothing to draw water up into them with. There was no soil. There was nowhere for their roots to go. So they couldn't sustain the heat. And they withered away. Other seeds, he says, fell among thorns. So they fell on soil, but it was soil that was already seeded with thorns. All right, so, well, what happened that? He says the thorns grew up alongside the plants is the idea, and they choked them out. And so, again, there's no harvest. What you see is three different options. Bad soil, bad soil, bad soil. How do you know that it's bad soil? Well, in the end, because it doesn't produce what the farmer's goal is. And what is that? It's a harvest. See now the contrast. He says other seeds fell on good soil. Here's how you know. They produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. The idea being that when good seed falls on good soil, it produces what the farmer wants. And that is a harvest. And then Jesus says this. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. That's just tricky, isn't it? He was ears, let him hear. You're like, well, I just heard. I still don't know what the heck this is about. I I don't understand. He was ears, let him hear. The disciples are frustrated, guys. They don't understand either yet, by the way. So the sermon is over. The crowds disperse. I'm imagining they go back to Peter's house. And then in private, Matthew, who's one of these guys, says the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? I think they're sensing a blown opportunity here from their perspective. I think they're going, look, dude, the great crowds, plural, came out looking for you, crowded you off the beach into a... It's standing room only. They stood there, story after story, parable after parable, dare I say, riddle after riddle, because that's what it was from their perspective. Absent the explanation, they don't know what this is about. You could have told them all about you and all about salvation and all about your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness and your kingdom and a new world and all of them. I mean, like, compelling vision. And you 
told him about a farmer and his seed and this kind of soil and that kind of soil and a road and a this and a that and a what's the deal? And listen to Jesus' answer. I'm not sure you're going to like like this initially. I'm going to try to explain it, but it's it's straightforward. Jesus answered them, and he, and, and he said, all right, let me tell you the difference, okay, guys, between you guys and between them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to these people who hunted me down, crowded me into a boat, stood in the sweltering heat, didn't even get to take a seat, hung in there through all of my stories, even though they don't have a clue as to what they're about, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Kind of sounds like the language of a harvest, doesn't it? But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus says, all right, you you want an answer? This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Let's take a commercial break for a second, okay? Because that's a lot of concentration right there. Uh, The truth is, most of us can't, you know, like watch a football game without at the same time scrolling through our phone at this point. So one simple question, what's wrong with the eyes and ears of these people that came and and crowded them out into the boat and stood there and they're like, because he's talking about their eyes and ears. The answer is nothing's wrong with their eyes and ears. The problem is their hearts. That's what he's talking about. Jesus sees the soil of their hearts, and he realizes seed cast upon that soil is never going to produce a harvest, and he's a farmer. He's a sower. He's there to see the production of a harvest, which kind of then makes sense of that statement. He who has, he has what? He who has proven that a harvest comes forth from the soil of his heart is going to get what? More. He who has not proven that a harvest is going to come forth from the soil of his heart, even what he has, because that soil is is full of thorns or because the, the soil is shallow and the sun's going to scorch it, or, or because the soil is, is really no soil. It's, it's more or less like a stone. It's, it's, like a, it's like a road he has not. Even what he has is taken away. The birds swoop in. They just they steal it. It's, it's gone. Jesus elaborates. He says in verse 14, he says, Indeed, in their case, in the case of those folks, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? For this people's eyes and ears? No. For this people's heart has grown dull. How's your heart? He's like, listen, I'm going to roll in the x-ray machine. I know you you don't x-ray soft tissue, but go with me on this. That's what we're looking at. This people's heart has grown dull, he says, to the things of God, to the word of God, to the Christ of God, to the mission of God, to the mercy of God, to the love of God, to the wisdom of God, to the call of God to do something with their life that actually matters. Their heart has grown dull. 
And so then with their ears, they can barely hear, and notice this, and their eyes, hang on, who has closed? They have closed. He's like, they have intentionally stopped up their ears and closed their eyes. They don't hear and see because they don't want to. It has been said that the blindest man is the one who refuses to see. He's like, yeah, that's the deal. He's like, look, they may be interested in me. You know, I mean, they did come out and they chased me down to the beach and into the boat and stood there and listened and all that. But the truth be known, he's like, they're interested in me for selfish reasons. They all came out because I'm a healer and they have a sick child. They all came out because, I don't know, they're looking for wisdom and I, you know, I dispense that regularly. They want me to fix their marriage. They want me to address some business issue with them. They, they want me to tell them what to do with their life or whatever. They're bored. I mean, they have no television. They have no smartphones. They've got no video games. They nothing to entertain themselves with. They had nothing left to do. They thought, oh, what the heck? This guy sounds like he's pretty amazing. Let's go see the show. But they're not coming to me like this with their heart. They're coming to me like this with their need. They're coming to me like this with their heart. He's saying, how's your heart? What's its posture? How's it looking? How is it oriented toward me? He says, look, you know, the problem is their heart. Their heart has grown dull. And so then with their ears, they can barely hear with their eyes. Let me tell you what they've done with their eyes. They have closed their eyes on purpose. They don't want to see or hear. But here's what would happen if they did. He says, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to me and open themselves up to the reality that I have a kingdom that I don't care what you put on this side of the scale, your lives, your children's lives, that's radical. It's greater than, it's worthy of. He says, look, if they did that, if they came like this, then I would heal them. But then he turns to his guys. And these guys, I mean, at this point, they've walked away from businesses. You know, they, their, their families are sacrificing for them to spend this kind of time following Jesus all around. You know, like, they're all in. He says, your hearts are different, guys. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to explain the parable to you. And in doing this, and Matthew records it for us, he explains it to us. Verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so then what is the seed? It is the word of the kingdom. It is the word of God about Jesus, about his love, about his mercy, about his grace, about his wisdom, about his power, about his plans and purposes for us and in us and through us and for the whole world. He's like, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes like a bird and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Because the soil of that heart is like a road and the seed just sits there. So the birds take it away, if you will. This is what was sown along the path, he says. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and he has no root in himself. So the soil of his heart is shallow, is the idea, and so it endures for a little while, but then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, that is to say, when becoming a Christian or being a Christian and living for Jesus becomes costly, Immediately he falls away. He doesn't have the root in God and in Christ to sustain a difficulty. And then he says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, its pleasures, its values, its responsibilities, its concerns, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out, 
and it proves unfruitful. And fruitfulness is the goal. But then Jesus says, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and here's how you know it's objective. Like you can look at your life and go, this exists, this does not exist. It's as clear as an x-ray. He says, he indeed bears fruit and yields a harvest. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. Guys, the message of the Bible about Jesus, about his goodness and grace, about his life and suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, about his teaching and what he calls us to and the value of his kingdom versus everything else in this world is like a seed. And when it's sown on good soil, what does it do? Because it always does this. It produces a harvest. It grows. And when it's thrown on bad soil, it doesn't. It's kind of an x-ray moment. You go, okay, so then, uh, yeah, I think I know the answer. And I want you to interact with the answer. You know, I mean, as you listen to the story and you just work your way through it, because I want you to interact with it, not to make you feel crummy, but to go, hey, this is an opportunity. Which of these four soils best describes your heart? Is it the path? Like, it's just, it's hard. Your heart is hard. Now, you come to church week after week, month after month, I don't know, maybe decade after decade, and the reality is it's just kind of sitting there. and It's not digging deep because there's... You're frozen up against it. There's no transformation because it's you're dull to it. You're hard against it. You don't want to let it in. These people have stopped up their ears. They have closed their eyes. It's so gracious of Jesus to explain this parable to us that unlike the people on the beach, we can go, Okay, I can see what my issue is here. I think I, I got the whole story. I understand it. And I understand within it there's an opportunity for me to go, you know, there are more valuable things here at stake. What a joy to follow Jesus. So is it the hard soil? Is it the rocky ground? It's, it's shallow ground, you know? You're, it's trials and persecutions come, and you're like, well, I guess that didn't work, you know? Or you're afraid they're going to come, so you're like a silent Christian. And incidentally, there's no such thing. Just, I mean, throwing it out there. I don't want anybody to know that I'm a believer because if they know that I'm a believer, they're going to think I'm a weirdo at the office. And they might. They might. I mean, just become a pastor. Then you're totally the weirdo, okay? Creates a lot of awkward conversations. But really, the roots need to go deep. They need to sustain the trials, the scorching sun. When the roots are deep, the scorching sun is a good thing. It produces more harvest, not less. It's ironic. What about the thorny soil, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches? You know, I mean, as you just survey your whatever you own. I think a lot of us own so much that we're so busy maintaining and keeping up with all the things that we own that we don't have time to serve Jesus. That's a weird way of thinking about things because most of us are spending our lives trying to get to the place where we own so much that we won't have any time to do anything other than to take care of what we've got. Jesus is like, oh man, I'm calling you to something better than that. All right, last one is good soil. And I love the way that he laid it out. Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. He's like, just some kind of fold. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, 
It produces a harvest. And it can produce more. It's beautiful. So which of the four soils best describes your heart? And then secondly, will you surrender your heart to God and ask Him to change the soil of your heart? It, you can't do that on your own. You know, in other words, you can't go, well, I'm going to change the soil of my heart today. You know, and I can't do it. You know, soil be changed. I mean, but what you can do is lay your heart before the Lord and say, I need you to supernaturally work on me. I want to have good soil. Will you ask him to change the soil of your heart by making Jesus and his kingdom more beautiful to you than anything this world has to offer? Because when that's the case, you won't harden your heart against any part of his word. Because he'll be more beautiful to you than anything like you might feel threatened by in any part of his word. You won't worry about what everybody at the office thinks or doesn't think because he's more beautiful to you than that. It's, it's just, that's your value. You won't consume yourself with the things of this world or be consumed by them. You'll be consumed by him and rightly prioritize all the rest. Guys, whether you realize it or not, Jesus is more beautiful than anything that this world has to offer. And here's the deal. Here's how you know when the soil is changing. It's objective. It's, it's like an x-ray. It's the production of a harvest. And maybe it starts at one fold. And it goes to nine, you know? Odd numbers. 31, 61. I don't know, maybe 101. But the idea is, you're here to bear fruit. So what is the soil of your heart? Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we are grateful uh, that we do not come to a God who is harsh, but to a God who is gracious and who is merciful. Uh, one who has demonstrated a love for us that we cannot even really begin to fully comprehend and that you have sent Jesus into this world to forgive us of all of our failures and, and all the ways that our hearts have been hard toward you or our shallow, our soil shallow or infested with other things. God, I pray that you would give us faith in this moment to just bring our hearts to you, ourselves to you, our lives to you, and to dare by faith to look upon you, to hear you, and to recognize that Man, you are more beautiful than anything, more satisfying than anyone. What a privilege it is to be called to follow you. Lord, do surgery on our hearts. God, where they're hard, make them, make them soft. Where they're shallow, make them deep. Where there are things that need to be removed, remove them. And in your grace, and plant your seed deep within us that we might, by your grace, produce a great harvest. We pray, Lord, that you would make us a fruitful people, life-giving people in our families, in our schools, in our businesses, in this community, to the glory of Jesus. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.